Hello, everybody. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic and co-host of the podcasts Critically Claimed, The Two Shot, and Cancel Too Soon. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am the co-host of those things as well. And uh, we are here to talk about some very bad things. Uh, this is uh, Peter Berg's directorial debut. Um, he was previously an actor. Uh, still an actor. Still an actor, Sometimes I suppose. Actor. And uh, this was before he sort of skewed off into making really militaristic thrillers, <laughs> well, like, uh, like it, Battleship. It, it feels like he sort of settled down after a while, but his first film, Very Bad Things, which we are, of course, uh, watching now, and uh, we'll be talking spoilers, so if you've never seen it before, uh, might want to watch it. Um, yeah, his first film was a film of a very young filmmaker with a lot to prove, and I think with Very Bad Things, for better or worse, this is a very polarizing movie, uh, is a director basically just saying, look at me, I'm about to make a movie and no one will leave the theater unchanged. And I think that's safe to say he accomplished that. Uh, for sure, for sure. This is um, a really rather difficult film to watch in many ways. Uh, this came in 1998. It's sort of the, I think it came as part of a post-pulp fiction boom mm. where that sort of violent sensibility of indie films was leaking into the mainstream. We were telling stories of crime and casual violence in a new sort of way. Uh, Pulp Fiction really changed how uh, violence was treated in movies. Previously, it was really sort of portentous or action-packed. Uh, after 1994, everything became very casual. Mm. And it became about just sort of a very casual moral depravity. And that casual moral depravity... It's kind of what Very Bad Things is all about. Well, it's interesting. Very Bad Things exists uh, at a very sort of unique crossroads within a lot of 90s cinema in both movies and television where it is a crime story. It is a comedy about guys hanging out in the swingers tradition. I do feel like casting Jon Favreau uh, in the lead in a story about people who go to Vegas and uh, reveal just how <laughs> immature, juvenile, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, maybe unhealthy they are. Uh, I don't believe that's a coincidence, or at least I think it's hard to believe people could extract that from their minds when they watch the movie. Um, you also got to remember that uh, you know Peter Berg came from television, and his film feels a lot of in a lot of respects like the kind of sitcom you might have watched as well. A bunch mm. of uh, middle class, upper middle class guys just talking about women and their lives and marriage, and then what happens if they kill somebody. Okay. So... Well, it, it, it trades very broadly in a certain kind of types and uh, a certain kind of old-fashioned sitcom tropes that I think Peter Berg is really trying to send up in a lot of ways. Definitely. Like, especially in the Cameron Diaz character. She's portrayed, I think, pretty unfairly in this movie. Uh, her character is kind of a harridan who's constantly, like, nagging. And her whole goal in this film is to achieve a kind of marital ideal that we see in the opening scene. They're getting their marriage license, and all she can do is yell at her groom-to-be about how he's screwing up. She's nagging, in other yeah. words. And uh, Well, again, I think we're supposed to, at least early on, sympathize with Jon Favreau and see him as this put-upon guy who is uh, sort of pushed around by everyone he knows, in particular Christian Slater, to a lesser extent Jeremy Piven, and definitely his fiance Cameron Diaz. Uh, Cameron Diaz at this point in her career was a really rising star. Uh, she was also very much ingrained in this sort of marital cinema genre. Like, uh, half the things she, were, she was doing involved marriage in some ways. Everything from indies like Feeling Minnesota uh, to My Best Friend's Wedding 
And this feels like her just trying to push at the boundaries of that after doing very family-friendly fare like The Mask or even yeah. uh, you know, more respectable fare as well. This is, I think, everyone basically just trying to get away with something. I also really like this opening sequence. I can't say for certain, because I, to the best of my knowledge, Peter Berg has never talked about it, but this sort of sequence reminds me of sort of the opening of something like Arsenic and Old Lace, where it's about the sort of banality of, of marriage, getting your marriage license, and then something ghoulish is going to happen as time goes on. And I think mm. Peter Berg is definitely trading in the screwball mentality here. A lot of his characters scream over each other a lot and talk over each other a lot, like in an old-fashioned Howard Hawks film. Uh, well, I wouldn't compare it to Howard Hawks because this film is so hateful. <laughs> People aren't just like, they're, they're not bantering with one another. They're not sort of like yelling and talking one another over one another like in a, a Robert Altman film. They're, they're just wailing at one another. Just sort of these horrendous wails of despair. Uh, all, you know, continuing all through the film and just lasting up to the very last shot, which is a howl of despair up at the uncaring heavens. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I do like the introduction of all these characters, how uh, you know Cameron Diaz is saying, your friends are terrible, and we get to see little snippets of how their friends behave out in the world. Um, yeah, Peter Berg, you said he came from sitcoms, and he's um, making a sitcom. Well, most likely at this point he was doing Chicago Hope more than anything well, else. Well, but uh, he is taking some very familiar sitcom things, these broad male types, right? We have the kind of put-upon-every-man as our main character. We have the hardworking best friend. We have the alpha. That's the Christian Slater character. We have the creepy guy. We have the family man. Those are all bickering brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think he is most certainly because of how horrendous this this film gets in terms of its morality. uh, He's clearly trying to make a parody of these characters, and I would compare this to something like Fight Club. Uh, in the way it criticizes masculinity. Right. These guys are all going to go to Vegas. And the promise of Vegas is kind of this adolescent male fantasy. You know, you go to Vegas and you get to have sex. You get to do drugs. You get to do whatever you like. It stays in Vegas. And it's this sort of freedom from any kind of decent marital domesticity, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he, so, uh, Peter Berg even talked about in uh, uh, interviews, he talked about the concept of uh, white rage, the idea that there is an underlying anger and frustration and masculinity and stifled violence underneath suburban and sort of middle class white affluence that is yeah. not necessarily being addressed, that is not necessarily being uh, expressed in a any way, healthy or otherwise. Um, and that when kind of the chips are down and all of a sudden consequences are possible, here's what people will do to each other just because they kind of can now yeah, and just because yeah. they can't and, think of any other way out of their problems. And that's completely Fight Club as well. Yeah. There was this late 90s need to explode a lot of these things uh, from media that we had come to rely on to give us definitions for things like marital bliss, things like masculinity. And in the late 90s, we're saying, no, well, what they're telling us is not healthy. You know, Fight Club is telling us that consumerism is bad, and this one is telling us that this kind of really bro-ish sense of male camaraderie, here's all our guys together, they're all going to have a great time, that it's all based on something really very dark. 
Something, and, something bleak and untenable in the human consciousness. And I think that's something people had a lot of trouble with. I can't think of a film that came out around this time. This came out uh, Thanksgiving weekend, 1998. Uh, opposite such cinematic classics as Home Fries and Ringmaster with Jerry Springer. And oh, those classics. Those classics. Also opened Babe, uh, same weekend as Babe, Pig in the City, which is a classic. But... Uh, yeah, I can't think of a lot of other films from that time period that are this polarizing, where people love it, like love it to pieces, think it's hilarious, and people hate it. They hate this movie. And uh, to his credit, I think that's what Peter Berg was going for. He yeah. wanted to get noticed. He wanted to uh, make an impression. He wanted to confront us with some really ugly things. But I think some one of the tricks... very bad things. Some very bad things. But I think one of the things that made it so difficult for some people to get on board with it is that although it is clearly a morality tale, nobody ends up okay in this movie. Even the people who are alive are ending this movie in a state of perpetual hell. Yeah. Uh, the movie does expect you to be entertained by all the horrors that come before it. And when I first saw the movie, I was whenever, however old I was when it came out, like 16. This movie challenged my worldview in a way that made me very uncomfortable. This okay. movie, you know, was about a bunch of... I mean, look at these guys. They're bros. They're just yelling at each other. They're bickering at each other. They're saying casually anti-Semitic things to one another. Shut up! <laughs> it's, it's, it's a group that I didn't feel like I belonged to. Okay. It's a group that um, I didn't think... I like to think the best of people. And when I saw in this movie that people have the you know, the propensity to do something really, really horrible and revel in it, and some people are fine with it, and some people just live with it. And it really made me uncomfortable. Yeah. It's the movie's yeah, yeah. cynicism, it's overwhelming cynicism made me really uncomfortable, and I'm reminded of Roger Ebert, his review of this, where he said it's basically a good movie, but he didn't like it. Yeah, his, you know? his, his words were, uh, it's, it's not a bad film, it's just reprehensible. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the whole idea is he says, you know, if you like this movie, that's one thing. But he said he thinks it tells him something about you if you think this movie is really, really funny. And maybe it does. But I do think it's a niche that wasn't being filled at the time. Yeah. Well, th this is just an unabashedly cruel film. This is not reaching out for any kind of sympathy. It's a morality fable about what happens kind of in a world where morals are gone. I think Peter Berg was even being darker than he assumed he was being. <laughs> he was just trying to be sort of confrontational and a little bit edgy and, you know, edgelord would be the, the phrase now. Yeah. But uh, I think some adults who were watching this were really kind of getting past the edgelordy stuff and just saying that this is just a, a moral suck hole of, t <laughs> of horrendous people who do horrible things to one another and end up in ruin, and there's nothing fun about that. Can we, and put, can we put moral suck hole on the DVD cover? I'm sorry, a moral suck hole. Uh, this montage right here, I mean, this is something that Vegas had this weird sort of cinematic reputation in the late 90s where it was a place of sin, but it was also like the kind of place that only these kinds of guys would go for that sin. Yeah. You know, yeah. like... You saw something like Vegas Vacation, which came out around the same time, and it really doesn't have the same attitude about Vegas, but, like, Swingers and Very Bad Things, they both simultaneous and Fear, uh, Fear and Loathing Las Vegas came out there at the same time. Yeah, yeah. They capture the allure of Vegas while also just telling you, Vegas kind of sucks. 
Well, Vegas is the best and the worst of humanity. It's the best in that it fulfills all your sensory wishes and you get to get drunk and have parties. It's also where the worst things in the world happen. It's kind of an, an, an indicator as to how bad America has become. <laughs> I, I feel like that's something that... Uh, like, this is sort of the idealized version of those hangover films. Mm. Oh, uh, Peter Berg has called this film, uh, uh, and I don't think, un- I, th- I think reasonably so. Uh-huh. Uh, he's called this film the grandfather of the hangover. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because the hangover has that same sort of thing. It's what these bros, they go to this, quote, like, bro heaven, which is Las Vegas, and the misadventures they get in therein. But that's a comedy of errors. That's just about slapstick set pieces, one piece to the next. This is actually confronting what, something like The Hangover is really getting at. What is it, the soul of the people like that? And I, I as it like, turns out, nothing. There's nothing like, in the souls of these people. I, I feel like if we had watched The Hangover, like, actually just seen what they had done while drunk, we'd have had no sympathy for those guys. Yeah, yeah Like, yeah. at all. And here we have a bunch of guys, they're drinking, they're doing a lot of cocaine, like, a lot of cocaine, and I have no sympathy for any decisions that they made. None uh-huh. whatsoever. Even, like, the least culpable mm-hmm. of all, arguably... Arguably Daniel Stern. He still goes with it. Like yeah, He could have yeah, done yeah. A, a million different things to try to prevent all of the many horrible decisions because the initial uh, horror that occurs in this hotel room mm-hmm. was an accident. It's a shocking death filmed in a shocking way. But like legally, I feel like I remember watching this well, movie for the first they, time. They don't. They immediately don't. Dis- like one of a few of them say, "We need to take responsibility for this right away." Exactly. But yeah, they kind of abandon that really quickly. Really quickly, and there's a couple of things uh, about that. But yeah, it's um, all of a sudden these guys who've lived their entire lives with a degree of affluence. They probably don't think of themselves as rich, but most of the of the human race would. Uh, all of a sudden, they're confronted with the possibility of consequences. Oh, so one of my bad decisions might come back and destroy us. Well, there's only one thing to do, and that's cut up bodies that and kill people. And although I don't think Peter Berg was explicitly getting at any sort of race relations here, it is worth noting that the people that they kill in the sequence are both not white people. Yeah, there's, there's and those an, are the people, an Asian woman and a black man. Those are the people who they consider to be expendable. Like yeah, our yeah. lives are more valuable than theirs. This is a story about a really insidious sort of self-centered privilege yeah, that lies yeah. at the heart of even a suburban, you know, seemingly normal, seemingly middle class, seemingly average type of person. Well, it, it it's kind of – these guys are not upper class. They're not wealthy guys. And I think mm. if they were, like, super wealthy men, mm. then the message would get across all – clearer like these wealthy guys just to get to sort of murder these people with you know impunity but i think that it becomes simplistic well exactly yeah that they're middle class guys who aspire to be upper class guys just kind of shows an additional layer of how insidious that encoding is Uh, i want to give a a big shout out here to uh, adult superstar kobe tai who i believe is uh, credited here as carla scott Uh, she actually does a really good job with a very small role um, yeah, she like she's t- actually Tina is the name of her character, and yeah, she she really at least gives Tina some character. Uh, yeah, she was a superstar in the adult world. I think this is her only non-adult feature um, feature film. Certainly the most prominent, if, yeah. if not. Um, and uh, yeah, I think she's a she's obviously a uh, a skilled stripper, uh, but uh, also I like that when Jeremy Piven finally takes her to the bathroom, 
she's very careful about observing sort of the, the rational, reasonable the rules, rules yeah, of, yeah. of sex work, which is you're going to pay me now, we're mm-hmm. going to settle on this now, and then, okay, now we've got that settled, we can get this job done. Um, so there's a scene later on, and... This was actually a detail I had forgotten from when I saw this film the first time. Because I saw this film in 1998. I actually saw this film multiple times in a theater. I was working in a movie theater at the time, so I could see it multiple times for free. <laughs> Why would I come back to this one? I was I admired its daring. Yeah. I'll say that. Uh, when when I in 1998 I was you know in college I was a little bit of a whippersnapper, a little bit of an upstart, and I appreciated that a lot of cinema was trying to be really confrontational, and a film that completely abandons any notion of sympathizing with the main characters I saw as being particularly like forthright and like this big maverick was making this daring film. Uh, Roger Uh, Ebert uh, actually at the Toronto National Film Festival when Very Bad Things premiered and uh, also with films of like Happiness by Todd Salons. Yeah, yeah. uh, He called that the new geek cinema. Uh, not geek in the contemporary sense of you like you know Battlestar Galactica and Star Wars, like a, like and a circus geek, yeah. but like a circus geek where like the whole appeal is watch me bite a head off of this chicken, mm. and his argument was that a lot of these movies are sort of existing only to see people do very bad things. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that doesn't preclude them from being good, but that is the raison d'être for what yeah, you're, we're here. You're, you're here to yeah watch a, a grotesque show, grotesquery. You want to just sort of. Hold your nose and recoil. I mean, how grotesque is it? I mean, like, they're intercutting sex Mm -hmm. with literal violence. The sex itself, even the sex itself, is kind of an act of violence. uh, Jeremy Piven's character here is... He's high on coke and he throws her around. It's Yeah, it's really a violent sex act. And on top of it all, I mean, like, he's the one, like, he's sleeping with the stripper instead of the bachelor, the, the man of the hour. He's sort of asserting his masculine dominance ahead of anyone else in the group. He's a very insecure person. Jeremy Piven's uh, character was originally supposed to be played by uh, Adam Sandler. Uh, Ooh, Adam's, that would have been interesting. I think it would have been interesting. Uh, Adam Sandler uh, would end up starring in The Waterboy, which came out a few weeks before this. And by the time Very Bad Things came out, it was still ahead of Very Bad Things at the box office. So uh, maybe Adam hit, Sandler yeah. would have helped. But well, I, I think this gets a little too close to the heart of what Adam Sandler's comedy is about, which is just rage and aggression. That's why Punch Drunk Love works so well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, it would have been a little too close to home for Adam Sandler too early in his career. Maybe nowadays he could get away with something like this, but yeah. And I must, I will say this, I really do love the way that Peter Berg uh, films and uh, edits this scene as a sort of an orgiastic, uh, almost a cult-like ritual where yeah. everyone is uh, starting to feel God, <laughs> and it leads to an almost literal sacrifice right here. You know, she yeah, has they... been sacrificed to their masculine urges. Yeah. Uh, Peter, Peter Berg uh, has described the uh, source of inspiration for this film as he was at a bachelor party where uh, women were performing, and men started getting closer and closer to them, and he saw them sort of losing their humanity. Yeah. And in in an interview, he even described his original thoughts as what if they had started just devouring them alive? And all of a sudden, there are men eating human flesh and the women were nothing but skeletons, which I feel like is almost almost a barely different movie than what we've got. (laughs) But yeah. That's that's coming from Shudder soon. 
But yeah, that's 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 an excellent point that this was sort of a blood sacrifice on the altar of uh, masculine expression. Mm. Um, something that uh, I, but what I was going to mention earlier, something that I didn't pick up on the first few times I watched this is there's a scene partway through this movie where uh, they're already far down the rabbit hole. They've murdered multiple people. And Christian Slater's character, Boyd, who has been sort of throughout the film spewing a lot of these self-help platitudes and bromides to kind of give himself motivation, kind of showing that if you're self-motivated but you're a morally reprehensible person, then self-motivation is not what you need. Yeah. Uh, He is giving all of these words of encouragement to all of these bros who are always really close around him. And he works himself up into this frenzy. And he leans forward and he kisses one of his friends on the mouth. He kisses Jon Favreau. That's that's later in the film. That's later in the film. And that kind of changes a lot of this dynamic. Because it, it kind of reveals that a lot of this masculine sexual energy that is being channeled into violence, that is being channeled into parties, that is being channeled into middle-class ambition, could just be seen completely and entirely as a metaphor for repressed homosexual urges, that these guys are really attracted to one another, that they have kind of a sexual dynamic. They're constantly touching. They're constantly in close proximity. Mm. And he's just trying to break through that. This is a weird sort of metaphor for uh, queer angst and the closet, if you look, if looked at it in a certain way. I think angle. that's in there. I think, I honestly, I think whether consciously or subconsciously, I think what Peter Berg is getting at here is a sort of rich tapestry of all of the issues of male relationships, like between groups of men, when you get them all together and mm. they start sort of nesting. And uh, I mean, even even John Favreau talks about Cameron Diaz. Are you nesting? Well, yeah. they they nest together as well. They just nest in a big pile of cocaine. So <laughs> this is what happens when they all a bunch of men get together and all of the filters go off. Horrible things. And when very bad things happen and everyone starts panicking and starts worrying about consequences, they start listening to the only person who isn't losing their mind. Now, that person is Christian Slater, and you're right, as we see and find out later in the film, he has been going to self-help classes and management classes, seminars, whatever. Self-actualization classes. So he is the one who is just processing, dealing with the problem, and he, in the process, he has completely shut off whatever humanity he once had. And there's a very pointed line, which seems to be a direct reference to Heather's, where someone asks Christian Slater when he says, we just got to cut up these bodies. And they're just like, have you done this before? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't answer. <laughs> he does not answer that question. Mm-hmm. Christian Slater, by this point in his career, seemed like a weird choice, which is, you know, he was still very much a heartthrob uh, at the time, after films like Untamed Heart and the like. But, uh, you know, he got to start making films like Heather's. He was seen as like a creepy young Jack Nicholson type. And this really does feel... Kind of like the apex of that part of his career. Yeah. I love Christian Slater. This might be one of his movie. best performances, frankly, is Boyd. This, like, uh, the moral suck hole in the center of the moral suck hole. I actually do admire what everyone is, I think, laying down in this film. It's just what they're laying down is ugly and screaming. And that's something Peter Berg has said he very explicitly wanted to do. When, as an actor... He was not allowed to be in scenes with five people yelling at each other as everything is escalating and there's overlapping dialogue. 
Um, that was something that was just seen as unnecessarily complicated, and directors and cinematographers and editors didn't want to have to deal with it. Yeah. He explicitly wanted to put that in the movie. He wanted to put in this cinema of panic that I think this movie really, really captures. From this point on, the movie is at like a 9 or a 10 in terms of intensity <laughs> the entire time. Even yeah. if it's subdued, even if people aren't actually killing anybody, you know it's in the back of their head. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so they, they go through it. They're voting. They're going to go with it. This is where they all lose their souls. Um, this is also where they start making explicit references to God. Hmm. There are actually a lot of uh, sort of religious sentiments expressed throughout this, um, how they're all they're all going to go to hell, places they don't want to go. Mm-hmm. They're just really, really freaking out. If we get out of this, we'll devote our life, God, to good works. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Should we give them a proper Jewish burial? Mm-hmm. And, you know, God is sort of lurking over them. I think they've, they're already damned, essentially. The yeah. references to God are just to prove that they're already in the bad place. And it's worth noting that this is, you know, a lot of movies don't delve into, I mean, I'm not going to call it a religious film by any stretch of the imagination, but it doesn't pretend that the entire existence of the characters in the film are, are secular. Mm-hmm. They do care. They do have feelings. They do have something akin to faith. But the first time they're confronted with a real moral problem, they just give right into sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they go, they go to Sin City. And I, I feel like... When we finally get to the final shot of the film, I, and it's just this sort of glory shot of Cameron Diaz, who has achieved everything she wants in the movie, and it turns out that's hell. And the camera pans away from her, and it shows all these tracked houses. I almost expected to see this really kind of meta-narrative where it pans out, and we see a big road sign next to a freeway that says, Welcome to Hell. You, you like think we this, needed that? <laughs> no, we didn't. But yeah. it, you know that would have made it a little too explicit. That's the you know, tales when, from the crypt ending. Yeah, when, when I was eighteen, yeah. that would have been really daring and <laughs> clever. But, but yeah, the, this is all hell. All of these people want hellish things, do hellish things, and everything they achieve is a punishment. And I feel like John John Favreau's character, he slowly kind of achieves a weird kind of peace by the, the end of the movie, even though everything has been destroyed. Uh, Cameron Diaz has achieved everything she wants, and we're going to learn more about her character later. Uh, and it turns out that is also hell. <laughs> it's, it's all just sin and hell and death in this movie. Um, Peter Berg you know, crafts this scene as a level of escalation because if it had just been we just killed one person and we tried to get rid of the body, that would have been enough Mm -hmm. for many other movies. And here we have an innocent bystander. And this bit right here is a nice little bit of Hitchcockian suspense where someone comes in, we know he could discover the body. Will he discover the body? How will he discover the body? And indeed, he only discovers it like right at the end, like catching a glimpse in a mirror. And he finds himself in the absolute worst situation with the absolute worst group of men. And although Christian Slater takes point on this, it's worth noting that when he tells everybody it's okay, he's going to bleed out, there does seem to be a certain sigh of relief. (laughs) This this woman has become their 105-pound problem. And this guy... I'm bad at guessing weights. I'm just going to lowball it and say he's 180. This guy becomes their 180-pound problem. Mm. They are not 
people to these guys. They're just in their way. Yeah. And that's something that's so horrific because these people are giving real performances. And that really brief performance, Kobe Tai gives you a little bit of humanity in her character. This guy seems like a really nice guy. Yeah, and in fact, uh, he... (laughs) Christian Slater's about to grab a corkscrew and do something really terrible to this man. And they're going to push him into the, the bathroom. He'll get to see it. I guess we'll talk about it when it comes up. But yeah, he, here he discovers the body. The, the absolute uh, pit where, you know, the flashpoint for all of their horrendous, hellish activities, the bathroom of the hotel in Vegas. It's like the, the center circle of hell. But yeah, they lock him in there. He he dies horrendously, and this actor who plays the uh, the security guard uh, improvised what he did in that bathroom. Yeah, Peter Berg is very big on improvisation. Well, he's, um, he's he was an actor, and I think he likes the performances to take uh, to be the focus of his scenes. I can only imagine how hellish it must have been to edit this movie. <laughs> and try to get all of these people who are just creating these different manic performances from scene to scene and getting them to edit together. It must have been nearly impossible, but, yeah. I mean, it works. Now, at this point, see all that running, that dashing, those really awkward moves as they're trying to get out the door, but they're trying to get out in one frame after another, you know, each getting their own hero shot as they leave. This shot right here, this is from Evil Dead. This is a Three Stooges routine. Yeah. This is a riff. And yet, I can't laugh at it. Well, That's something. It's a comedy. It's it. not actually, I, I, I think it's fair to say it's not really funny. It's framed as though it's funny. But the people who are suffering are genuinely suffering. This guy is dying mm. right now. We find out not too long from now that this guy was a father. This guy people who yeah. cared about him. Well, he's he's charging against the door, and yeah, Peterberg, he wanted this guy to improvise, and he's the one who's shouting, help, help. He's screaming out in pain and desperation. If he were screaming in rage, like, I'm going to kill you guys, then it would the scene would actually play a little bit more comedic. Yeah. Like, they're trying to hide from him. We they're might have threat. some sympathy for them, yeah. But yeah, he, he is wailing as he dies, and that actually makes, yeah, it makes the scene... A, far more horrendous. It makes these guys seem far more horrendous. And it makes the scene a lot more effective. Well, effective is an interesting word here because the question is effective at what? If it's trying to make you laugh, a lot of people don't find this particularly funny. Mm. I've actually come around on this. As I said before, I found this film extremely unpleasant when I first saw it. And in the years that follow, I still find it extremely unpleasant. But what I've found is not that I now think it's funny. It's that I now think that, although it may occasionally be funny, this is a horror movie. Look at this shot. <laughs> this shot in any, this is a shot from a Dario Argento movie. This is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. In every conceivable way. It's terrifying for the human condition. It's terrifying for its violence. It's really grotesque. And I think that, I think, is maybe something that was missing from the initial conversation about very bad things. is isn't whether or not it's a funny screwball comedy. isn't about whether or not it's moral. The issue is, is its shocking quality scary? And I think it is. Um, in terms of, yeah, morality, it is sort of scary. But this is not filmed like a horror movie. It's filmed like a comedy. And it's presented like a comedy. And I think that's what people are responding to. It's like you watch Evil Dead 2. Or, or Army of Darkness. You know, those are ostensibly horror films, but those are shot like Three Stooges slapstick comedies. They're mm. timed like comedies. 
I would argue that those films are comedies more than they are horror films. And the same with Very Bad Things. It's a comedy. The only difference is it's not funny in yeah. like a conventional way. It's it's funny in that you're meant to sort of laugh at how off like off center it is, how off the beaten path everything is supposed to be. This is the Reservoir Dogs shot. <laughs> These guys sort of walking abreast in slow motion, they're, and they're playing this sort of cool music. But of course, these guys are not cool. And I think maybe that's what a lot of people objected to. There's all of these scenes that are presenting these characters as kind of cool and flip and aloof and above it all. But I think Peter Berg wasn't presenting them that way. I think he was really trying to show how horrendous these people were in a satiric sort of way. No, I think I think the irony is, I mean, it's an ironic counterpoint. I think yeah, even look yeah. at like a lot of the music choices in the film with this sort of, uh, it's very upbeat. Yeah. Even when something really terrible is happening. Um, a lot of the stuff right here in the film, if you're looking at it from a plot perspective, doesn't hold up to a lot of scrutiny. Um, mm. That security guy at the hotel, they would have known they sent him to this room. If he hadn't shown right, up for the right, hours right. it would have taken to do this, they would have sent someone in to check. Um, let's not pretend, oh, the meat on that saw is so <laughs> the gross. Gore. Um, the gore. The gore is maybe one step too far. I was even watching this with uh, with my wife, and she... Uh, she spent a lot of time in Vegas, like she had relatives there, and she was just watching that montage a minute ago, and she was like, there was no Target that nice in, like, the 90s in Vegas. <laughs> There's no way they were going to get all that stuff at that Target, which I thought that was a funny detail. Yeah, this, this is Vegas in 98, where there was still a good deal of sleaze. I mean, there, there always is a good deal of yeah. sleaze around Las Vegas. But, yeah, if you go to the Strip these days, it's really clean. It's a lot more family-friendly. It's more about sort of shows and fun. Yeah. And the, the casinos are much cleaner now. And which yeah, just it was, it was that, really filthy. Which just means all the gross ago. stuff is happening under the surface more. Yeah, yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, but I again, like that the, the ghosts of old Vegas were kind of looking over their shoulders in that scene. There's a, <laughs> like a shot where you, Jeremy Piven looks over his shoulder at a picture of Wayne Newton. And uh, there was a scene just a moment ago where he was looking at a portrait of Don Rickles. Like these these well, old, old spirit, like masculine spirits of Las Vegas I mean, were kind even, of giving their, like, even, look, their judging eyes to the scene. Even the mafia. I mean, you look at someone yeah, like something yeah. like The Godfather where someone like says, hey, Senator, this woman didn't have a family. It'll be like, this never happened. Mm. Except these guys aren't senators. They're just dudes who should be in jail right now. Uh, this scene right here, we've just killed two people in horrific and tragic manners. This scene right here with the body parts is astoundingly grotesque to me. <laughs> and it's not because they've all chopped them up. It's because they feel the need to reassemble them. Like actually handle the body what parts some more. an inspired piece of violent mm -hmm. lunacy that is. And the performances are really great. Daniel Stern has, you know, for many years played Madcap very well. You think to something like Home Alone, he's just always freaking out. Uh, bushwhacked. Um, oh, excuse me. Of course, the, the masterpiece, the bushwhacked. classic Bushwhacked. Um, you know, Kristen Slater is giving his wonderful, morally depraved, repressed character. Uh, the the real revelation for a lot of people was Leland Orser. Um, mm. Some people might remember him as the the guy who freaked out in the police questioning room in Seven, or the guy who freaked out in Alien Resurrection. He's one of the great freaker outers. Yeah, he was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager where he played like a really fastidious hologram <laughs> who was so grossed out by like biological organisms. Yeah, he was perfectly cast in that role. Yeah, he's really good at nervous guys. It's so weird to see him in a film like Taken, where he's actually like kind of relaxed and in control. It's weird to see him actually in a lot of the backgrounds of scenes in this movie, because you'll notice that 
in almost every scene when he's like in the background, he's like doing some kind of cardio. Yeah, it's kind he was of just like bouncing up and down lot. in the background just a few seconds ago. He is always on. He is always panicked. And it's weird because he's actually kind of the outsider. He's the one who just knew John Favreau the longest. Mm. They're not super close. He's just kind of there. He's not rich. He's a, he's a mechanic. In the original draft of the uh, script, he was a baker, which I think would have cast him as a bit more of a sensitive uh, soul mm. than maybe we get from mechanic. That particular change, according to Peter Berg, uh, came from when he had finished the script for Very Bad Things. He found out that there was another similar film called Stag that was currently in development or making the rounds that was also about a bachelor party and the stripper gets killed and then they accidentally kill somebody else and then it's all them trying to get out of it. Yeah. Um, Stag stars Mario Van Peebles and uh, um, Andrew McCarthy in basically the Christian Slater role as like the one creepy guy who takes charge and gets everybody to do oh, horrible Andrew things. McCarthy would knock a part like that out of the yeah. park. And it's not nearly as stylish. It uh, takes place all in one night. It is a different film. It's interesting that Somehow people gravitated around the same basic concept. I think the idea of a stag party, of a bachelor party, going horribly wrong is something we accept as kind of universal. So that when Rough Night did it a few years ago, a lot of people went, oh, it's like very bad things. But at the same time, it's like, but that's how that story is. It's like Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. A lot of people have done Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day is just the template. Very bad things, I feel, has become sort of the template of this kind of we accidentally killed someone. Now the whole movie is we got to figure out how to get out of yeah. it, even though it didn't invent the trope. Wait, we killed a stripper in Vegas has become such a cliche now. Right, but you can see its relatives in something like mm. Danny Boyle's Shallow oh, Grave. It's such a horrendous shot. Look at of this. The... This is a nightmare. You ever see that that anthology film Asylum with the the bundled up body parts? Oh gosh, it's just like Asylum. <laughs> Again, it's a horror movie. This yeah, is yeah. this is a terrifying nightmare of a situation and the fact that it is all being done in an attempt to be in accordance with religious law is so perverse yeah yeah well you're talking about how this film is you know sort of setting the the the, the standard holder for we killed a stripper in vegas the genre <laughs> we uh if you look at sort of the uh What's going on in the world today and in, in the year we're recording this? Uh, 3,012. 3,012. Yeah. In, in whatever the present is for you, dear listener. Yeah. Uh, the institution of the bachelor party is actually on the wane. Bachelor and bachelorette parties aren't as popular as they once were because, I think, of films like this. Um <laughs> Not that you know people are saying, oh, you know, we're we're not going to go to Vegas and have fun anymore because we're afraid we're going to kill a stripper or that that's really a common thing. But I think this uh, film was indicating something that was going on in the culture about how what people want from marriage and what people want from bachelor parties and what people want from those institutions are just ready to be torn to the ground. Yeah, we need to disassemble the bachelor party. What is this really about? What is a bachelor party really meant to be? It's about depravity, right? About macho hedonism. Yeah, yeah. Ma ma this macho hedonism needs well, to be picked apart. And it's also it needs about to this be torn fantasy. To pieces. It's also about this fantasy that, like, after you're married, you're never going to have any fun anymore. Yeah, I was, I was going to say when we get back to uh, Cameron Diaz, I was going to start talking about the whole game over phenomenon. No, uh, you and I are both married men. Sure are. Uh, I uh, when when I was preparing for marriage. 
you would go to a lot of these wedding stores and so much of the merchandise you could buy, the cake toppers, the t-shirts, the bachelor party accoutrements, were all devoted to the woman, in some cases, literally tying the man down. The the, gr- mm. the bride was on top of the cake and the groom was trying to flee the cake. Oh, I've seen I a, know. I've so seen a, a teacher where uh, a t-shirt where uh, it's a picture of a bride and a picture of a groom. The bride is smiling and the groom is frowning and it says game over. That's kind of a, a common t-shirt. Well, if right. if the game is over, why are you getting married? Just stay single if you're that upset about it. Oh, if you're that immature. I mean, yeah, like, but this, again. this notion that these bro that yeah, marriage is sort of a requirement that no real man really wants. And yet I feel like this movie has a weird message about that because, mm-hmm. you know, if that were the case, if the film were making that argument, Cameron Diaz would be a respite from that. I mean, I guess Jane Triplehorn is. She gets off really well. Well, But, the, like, well, not her character. Her character ends horribly. But, like, morally, she's as close as anyone can be to the center of this movie. But... I mean, like, his male friends are a nightmare or perfectly willing to go along with the nightmare if the situation arises. And Cameron Diaz isn't much better. And I think one of the issues, I think if the movie has any sort of lesson for Jon Favreau is that he makes bad friends. (laughs) Well, he's also bad. I think that's also fair to say. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's it's a cynical worldview overall. It's it's a cynical worldview, and I think it really all comes down to the institution of marriage because it's a bachelor party where things go wrong, and this is yeah sort of a way to celebrate masculine energy before the game over of marriage. But what is marriage in this universe? It's an equally depraved world because what Cameron Diaz wants is a a kind of authoritarian control over the entire world. Yeah, she it's not just sort of an amusing bridezilla type character and you know that sort of and that cliche is pretty ugly it's it's an ugly cliche and i don't like that bridezilla has become sort of a a a cultural term this is common term that people use but uh yeah this sort of it goes beyond that in this movie into her being this almost psychopathic control freak and she's willing to do anything as it turns out to maintain what the marriage is supposed to be like the ideal marriage is supposed to be right and in her world, the ideal marriage also is the game over. She wants to deliberately section him off from these freaky friends. Mm. She deliberately wants to keep him in what is in her mind kind of this very particular version of domesticity. And what she ends up getting is that domesticity. She gets kids. She gets a pet. But as we'll see in the final shots of the movie, it's kind of a a, a grotesque, dark, like mutilated dark mirror of that. Yeah. So here we're washing the slate clean, quite literally. <laughs> Everything's fine. No harm, no foul, right? Uh, but their van. Their <laughs> van is still filthy. <laughs> Vegas, man. Vegas. Uh, John yeah, Favreau's I... about to have a conversation with Cameron Diaz in a second here. Um, I choose to think that Peter Berg wasn't making something as crass as video game violence equals real world violence. I just think that scene uh, probably references the fact that Christian Slater is the only one of them who isn't suffering internally right now. He's not suffering. He's playing a game and he's just sort of he's getting off on the violence. The the games aren't the problem. The games are the symptom of his mind. I think mm. I think it's fair to say. Uh, but yeah, John Favreau was about to talk to Cameron Diaz on the phone. And again, another thing I was really shocked by when I first saw this movie was when he calls her and she's really happy. He's like, oh, did you did you have the cocaine? Mm. 
which shows that she's pretty morally flexible anyway. She is not living in this very like rigid Ozzy and Harriet idea of what marriage and morality should be. Cocaine is just part of their lives. <laughs> Cocaine is just a thing you do yeah. on a weekend. Uh, back to a point I was making earlier, though, when I brought up Stag. Uh, it, he, apparently, Peter Berg actually like had to change a few things in his script just to make sure there wasn't any, no one could say any accusations. And uh, one of the things he changed was that Leland Orser was a baker. One of the characters in Stag was a baker. Changed it. Mm-hmm. Now he's a mechanic. Um, but otherwise, they're very different films. I think it's a good change, mechanic. Mm-hmm. Another they, see, they see everything as you know mechanical problems. Another uh, uh, story that uh, Peter Berger said was uh, an influence, at least, I imagine at least tonally, uh, on Very Bad Things was A Simple Plan, which is a movie that came out just after Very Bad Things, but of course uh, would have been making the rounds, and I think it's based on a book. But Sam, Raimi's best, Sam Raimi's best film, if you ask me. Arguably, yeah. and it's another film about seemingly normal people doing very bad things because the situation seems to call for it. That one plays like a, as a much more comfortable morality play, though, because I think all of the characters in that one, we don't get to see their violence. We just sort of get to see casual betrayal. Mm-hmm. It actually is more about the morality and more about their thoughts and more about their inner well, lives. I mean, that one's more of a conventional noir than this. This is, uh, again, it's... This is a comedy film. Well, it's a, it's a satire, and yeah. I think it's a satire of what men and masculinity and a lot of these conventions that we take for granted had become. Yeah. I mean, here Cameron Diaz is micromanaging literally every single one of his friends. Like... Like his to, down, marriage to is, finger, down to their fingernails. His marriage is going to control all of them. Okay. Yeah. Which is a really ugly thought. And again, this like her her ideal wedding is all she's ever lived for, and you know she doesn't talk about what she wants her marriage to be or what they want relationships to be. It's all all boils down just to the wedding itself and the details of the wedding itself. This looks like it hurts. It does. Does it hurt? Yeah, I can't is really it, breathe. Is this your shirt? Did you bring this? Cameron Diaz is a really interesting performer, I think, totally because uh, she made her debut in The Mask, which was just four years before this, and uh, she was a teenager in that one. I think she was only 19 when she made The Mask. Around there, yeah. And you know, she was really good as uh, sort of like a, 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 a sensitive love interest. Like she was presented as, in, in the words in that movie, uh, a party favor. But then she came out and had some actual character and some depth to her in that movie. And she made some choices. You know, you were talking about how she was you know, the queen of romantic comedies, and she did a lot of those movies. But it was only a year later that she would do Being John Malkovich. Yeah. And she was really interested in a lot of these really kind of off-the-wall indie projects, really oh, kind yeah. of stretching herself as a performer. I think so, she'd already done Life Less Ordinary, which was another Danny Boyle yeah, Danny movie, Boyle uh, which was in some respects also kind of a takeoff of certain comedic tropes, mm-hmm. comedies, angels influencing us, but went off in very bizarre directions. Now, I always admired her ability to uh, stretch and her willingness to take on odd projects when mm-hmm. she could have very easily just become, you know, the new Meg Ryan. Yeah. Meg Ryan, who has also done interesting indie projects, but True. she has, you know, the reputation. As, well, at as the height of her the, career in the, the late 80s, yeah, early 90s, lead. that was that was her Her stock persona. in trade, yeah. yeah. I think this is a really interesting symbol where Boyd kind of destroys his own face. Yeah. 
So yeah, th this the the dream of domesticity, this middle class aspirational game that they've all been playing their whole lives is over now. Yeah. All all of the decorum is just going to fall away. It's all going to be rage, wrath, and violence from here on out. Well, and look at the thing that finally made Boyd snap. Like, even when he killed a guy, he was very calculated about it. What made him snap was that his friends are failing him. Yeah. What made him yeah. snap is that now that we're back home, what happened in Vegas did not stay in Vegas, and you guys won't let it die. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that I think is killing him. This whole sequence here at this gas station, this is an extended sequence that... I bet would lift out of the film entirely and you'd never know it was gone. Well, exce is... except for the, the injury to Gene Triplehorn's face. Well, yeah, fine. But like, yeah, okay, you need to explain that. But I just mean in terms of what it's doing to Daniel Stern's character, this scene is just a gift to Daniel Stern. <laughs> like, hey, can you freak out like forever? And he's and, just like, yeah. yeah, I can do that. And in, in a like in a different film, like you could see this out of a vacation film. Mm. Wait, but like and some, yet, something really like a National Lampoon kind of broad comedy, even the way it's edited and all these weird close-ups. If there's a suddenly a serious scene in the middle of like a broader comedy, it would work perfectly and be hilarious. Like imagine Chevy Chase doing this scene. And yet, you know, in his world, all of these fears and anxieties he has are very, very real. Mm -hmm. I, I I actually took away an entirely different uh, interpretation of this scene. I was looking at this like Janet Lee in the car in Psycho, just yeah. imagining every single person she's interacting <laughs> with telling the cops, yeah, this is a very one. strange lady. She was very eager to sell her car. Are wizards an actual thing? I wizards thought... are not an actual candy. They made okay. it up for the movie. Okay, because it looks like they meant Twizzlers and they couldn't get the rights to Twizzlers. We do get to see the actual fake packaging they came yeah, up with. Yeah, it looks right? like Twizzlers. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone actually knows of Wizards and uh, can get us some Wizards, and mm -hmm. those are real candies, you can send them to us, and we would love you to do so. But uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that they're real. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> just, just enjoying Daniel Stern in this scene. This is terrific. <laughs> See, uh, see, we're we're sort of a little bit. We've seen this film a couple times. We're a little bit distanced from the action here, but you know, so we're able to kind of laugh at just the slapstick of the scene. But when I was rewatching this and in, in preparation for this commentary, just nothing in the scene in this entire movie was at all funny to me anymore. Well, uh, yeah, like I, I could, I wasn't a young buck any longer. I didn't have the sort of attitude of. You know, yeah, stick it to the man and undo all of the tropes that we were used to. I was just seeing the moral ugliness and just the moral ugliness. Okay, it's and so, so weird. I, I've I've cooled to how daring it was and warmed to how horrendous it is. And yet, I am the exact opposite because initially I was incredibly turned off by just how nihilistic and apocalyptic this mm. movie is morally. Like as a teenager. Yeah. And as an adult, I wouldn't say that I'm getting off on how it's like breaking all the rules. But what I am appreciating is looking at this movie as a bunch of, uh, many of them very young, actors, directors, people in Hollywood who are just throwing caution to the wind. Yeah, yeah. And who are just doing something and maybe it won't work and maybe it, maybe it is in poor taste. Who the hell knows? But 
they're taking a chance. This movie is, you can say a lot of things about very bad things. You can say a lot of things, and they're all accurate, even if they contradict each other. It's not playing it safe. It is not afraid to be hated. It is not afraid to not be funny. Mm-hmm. It's not afraid to appeal to people who have very gross taste. And it's and it's not afraid to give people scenes and dialogue and opportunities as actors to do things that every other movie would say, hey, you're at a 10, bring it down to a 4. It feels like Peter Berg said, no, 12. 12 is what I want from you, Daniel Stern. <laughs> I'm already at a 10. Where do I go? Up uh, 4. <laughs> Camp came football. And for those of you who didn't follow the sports pages back in 1977, you might not remember the Pee Wee Powerhouse Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm always a fan of a good whip pan. <laughs> like I said, it's it's filmed like a comedy. This is a comedy film, but it's just not intended to be laughed at. Uh, I, I did read Roger Ebert's review of this, and he said that uh, in, in his review that uh, he said the people who really liked it, he was really sort of suspicious of their character. Mm. And I can understand what he means by that. Uh, if, if there's somebody who's, like, if I were to approach somebody on the street and they said, Very Bad Things is my favorite movie, and they said it in kind of a lascivious sort of way, you can tell they're kind of getting off on the, the violence of it all. That that would be a little bit creepy. It's like, uh, I, I love the movie Fight Club, but there's some guys who are, like, really into Fight Club. Well, I, I'm that, actually... That kind of... Kind of Frightened me a little bit. Uh, I'm actually I'm actually going to quote uh, Roger Ebert when he was talking about the new geek, oh, okay. uh, the new geek cinema. Um, what some of these directors do not seem to realize is that films are really about something. They are not just exercises in style. Not all racism, women hating, and monstrous torture can be cloaked in the forgiving veil of irony. The new geeks see the surfaces of Tarantino and do not begin to guess the depths. And I'm not sure it's that they don't begin to guess the depths. Is that very Bad Things is a, a rookie filmmaker. I don't think he's matured. I think this is just him sort of flailing wildly and mm. making something that's really interesting. And, uh, you, know, you know, a little, uh, I'm going to call it morally naive. Moral, yeah, that, that's a, a fair yeah. way to put it. It's kind of adolescent. That, the idea that it's okay, everyone turns out badly at the end, therefore it's mm. moralistic. Well, maybe it's not, and I think it's actually fair to have that conversation. One thing I can say for certain about Very Bad Things is that you can really talk about this movie with anybody, and you're going to find out that people kind of take away different things. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's, that's potent art. You can say it's good art or not, but it's potent art. Ultimately, uh, you know, we've said this several times already, this, this plays like a satire. It's meant to be a satire, and I think... Uh, something Roger Ebert kind of missed about this sort of new geek movement. He also brought up uh, Todd Sullivan's Happiness. Yeah. And these are films that are uh, very much about you know, despair. They are nihilistic films. They're deeply, deeply cynical movies, like down to their very core. And they're using, those films are using cynicism to reveal kind of the meaningless, meaninglessness of a lot of these institutions, a lot of, of very basic things like just human decency and friendships and marriage and relationships. All of those things to a lot of these filmmakers are inherently meaningless. They are absurdist filmmakers. Mm. Uh, Peter Berg is not uh, trying to celebrate violence. He's making an absurdist film. He's right. trying to point out that everything in this film is meaningless. All of these people's lives are meaningless. Life itself is kind of meaningless. The but universe 
is an uncaring place. You could read Camus and then watch very bad things and get a really similar message. Okay, I think that's that's fair. Are we saying it's as good as Camus? I'm saying Camus maybe had a little bit more grace to his points. That's fair. But I think, again, I just think this is this, the type of story that people who are young and in despair mm. and kind of feel like they've unlocked the universe. Like, yeah, this is what it's like, man. This is the real world. Yeah, yeah. and I think even if Berg wasn't there himself as a filmmaker, I think it's one of the things that appealed to people in that sort of Fight Club era yeah. where well, yeah, again, I, bet, was... I bet people who were in the Fight Club in Fight Club would love this flick. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, yeah, it just this was the late 1990s, and there was, a, there was a lot of popular art that was devoted to the tearing down of these institutions. Everything was – the camera had turned inward. At that point, the Cold War was over. Uh, the Cold War had been over for a decade at this point, and there was still no unifying factor of Generation X, which is you know the generation all of these characters and the filmmakers, to define themselves. And they started looking at all the institutions that were meant to define them, things like marriage, things like friendships, and finding them lacking. So we have film after film after film about these institutions that don't matter any longer. Mm. And I feel like this is just a dark rendition of that. There well, were I mean, some that were actually very kind of light and fun. True. Uh, even even a horror movie like Scream is a walk in the park compared well, to this. I, I would actually argue that John Waters' is Serial Mom kind of gets oh, yeah, the cereal, same thing. Well, all of John Waters' films, <laughs> really. But, yeah. but you were bringing that up, and it's actually a great scene to, to talk about it, because here Jeremy Pivot is on a specific... Des destroy the one symbol of that middle class... Uh, yeah. Uh, um, He's going to destroy the van. But to Daniel Stern, the van is worth throwing himself in front of. He is panicking, trying to protect his domesticity. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to protect his perfect life. And now it's gone. Was it worth defending? Was it worth breaking? I'm not sure Very Bad Things is answering those questions or even asking those questions. But as someone who is looking back on it now... I mean, this feels this movie is almost a cry for help. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a young person looking at uh, a young person. It we I use the word adolescent. It's a young adolescent viewpoint trying to destroy it. Uh, yeah, it's in, in Peter Berg's eye. It is worth breaking. Everything is worth destroying, because destruction is what lies at the heart of all of this. <laughs> Just hell and suffering. That's all. At the, that's all. That's at the base of this. And I read a few interviews with Peter Berg. He doesn't seem like a gloomy person. You watch, yeah. you watch Happiness, and then you see an interview with Todd Salons, and Todd Salons is, is a gloomy person. He, just in interviews, he's really, really nihilistic. He doesn't care about a lot of institutions. He really is trying to actively dismantle a lot. Same with somebody like Lars von Trier. He makes all of these films about depression and despair, and he feels a lot of depression and despair. Yeah. Peter Berg is kind of a cheery dude. Well, I think that's maybe that's one of the reasons why this movie comes across the way it does, where it's kind of making light off of issues that, you know, someone like Ebert, for example, found objectively horrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he was just coming at it from a place of, this is fun, and maybe it's not. Uh, Peter Berg told a story about how at an early screening of the movie, he saw someone run out, like a woman run out and throw up. Meanwhile, yeah. people were laughing in the theater, and he was just like, okay, this is going to be weird. <laughs> I, uh, I had a, a, a film professor when I was in film school, and we were talking about sort of the, the films that challenge us the most, and somebody brought up Very Bad Things. It's just this incredibly challenging film. And 
he said that when he went to go see Very Bad Things, he actually got to review it because he was a critic back in 98. And how he watched the film and he had to leave the screening room and immediately call his wife just so he could reconnect with something that was decent. <laughs> so, something real in the world. But that's horror. That's yeah, my point. Yeah. That's not comedy. That's horror. That's mm-hmm. Maybe it's unintentional, but I think he made one of the scariest movies of the 90s. Yeah, there, there are scenes in this. As an adult, I watch this, and it's totally gut-wrenching. Yeah. The scene where he, yeah, he destroys the minivan, and we see... I mean, they're clearly like dummy arms, as you can see on this Blu-ray, but... Uh, the uh, you just get to see his stiff arms like within the cru- like the wreckage of the crushed car. Mm. That's like scarier than any bit of gore in a hostile film. We we walked past like a really good bit from Christian Slater that I'm actually a little torn on. I'm curious in your thoughts. Mm. When he is watching Daniel Stern on his deathbed, whisper to Gene Triplehorn. Christian Slater is he has tears in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he is? What, what do you think he's sad about? That the, that all of these things have to continue and it's only going to get worse? Because, I don't know, I think he's starting to get off on that. Or is he, like, actually feeling bad for his family? Do you think he has any sort of sympathy in his, in his soul? Do you think no, soul? I don't think he does. I think he is a complete and utter sociopath. He has no, no moral center. He has already destroyed himself, as we saw in the symbol, where he's crushing his own face on the realty sign. And I think the tears might come from something very dark. Uh, if if you'll allow me to theorize, please. I think he is feeling glee at witnessing more death. I think if this movie takes place in hell, he's the demon who is instigating all the action. Interesting. And he is just sort of pleased that his plan is continuing to spread misery. Okay, can I just say I really like the idea, and I'm sure this is totally unintentional, but I really like the idea that this movie is actually just taking place in hell. And they're kind of like reliving all of their sins that are making them. This is how they got to hell, and they just have to keep reliving it over and over. Or to some extent, where they're just sort of trapped by their own uh, frailties and evils. I mean, you look at the scene, like Jeremy Piven, who is, uh, I mean, he's a real piece of crap in the whole movie. Like, he's just, he's the reason they're in this mess in the first place. He's just terrible. He killed his Hmm. own brother. He's, He's not a good human being by any conventional measure. And yet he's been put through enough that he is willing to scream his culpability for one murder. Mm. Not so much the others, you'll notice. <laughs> but like he's willing to scream his culpability in a public place. He is at that point. Yeah. They're so desperate. They've, they've gone so far down the rabbit hole now that they're just breaking. What did you ask me? I said, what have we done? <laughs> Here's that scene. Yeah, the... Yeah, and this is the scene where I, I, I feel like maybe this film could be seen as sort of a, a metaphor for the closet. I, I don't sense a lot of, like, eroticism between these guys other than their, like, proximity and their sort of well, I mean, just look at the fraternal I know, closeness. I know this is a gag because you need to get everybody in the frame, but just look at how close Leland Orser and Jeremy Piven are sitting together. Uh, yeah. Well, from, it's like, also from, they're, in a, they're in a car. That's my yeah. point. Is Well, my point is that they're sitting together that closely so that in that big wide shot, you can get every actor's face in the frame. But if you look at that from the actor's perspective, what motivates them to sit that closely? Mm-hmm. They're in this together. There is a cohesiveness. There is an indelible bond that can mm-hmm. only be broken by horrific murder, and it will be. Yeah. And what... Here and this this speech this is like the uh, the one speech in Fight Club which people actually don't quote a lot but actually contains the actual theme of the movie, uh, where uh, Tyler Durden in Fight Club is talking about how 
he sort of has this dream of the ideal masculine world, and it's about how everybody's just shirtless and climbing on vines in the ruined cities. This wonderful scene where he talks about how love will not lose, how what they're doing is all out of love. Mm-hmm. That is the the dark mirror of every romantic comedy, isn't it? Of every film about friendship, of every film about romance. Love will through. We love each other. Mm-hmm. And it will help us survive. It's the thing that will keep us together. Yeah, well, what if the thing, what if the reason you're staying together is because you all mutually committed horrendous acts together? That's right. not a closest we, closeness we need to defend Maybe necessarily. Maybe love shouldn't conquer all. Yeah. Maybe there are some things love should be like, be like, yeah, okay, horrendous murder. You're right. Yeah, these people should be in jail. These people are terrible. Mm. And uh, the, the language that I think this film is satirizing is also lurking underneath because we did learn that Boyd is going to all of these self-actualization classes. He's adopted a lot of that language and he's learning to be sort of self-motivated mm-hmm. learning to pick himself up and not worry about judgment and well, worry about another, sort of self self-validation that's another and fight club parallel right that's, there. it's a fight what, club parallel yeah. and it's also something that's uh, being reflected now in the modern age we're hearing a lot of talk about self-care and self-actualization and all of that language is usually ignoring the fact that well what if your motivation is to do something really terrible? <laughs> like, you need the motivation to do. Yeah, but what are you going to do? In the case of this movie, it's to cover up murder, and it's to continue to kill people to cover up more murder. Maybe motivation isn't our problem. <laughs> yeah, that, that sort of self-actualization language is so self-focused it's such a selfish philosophy well, I mean, the whole that it doesn't bring in yeah yeah but yeah. you know it doesn't really bring in any kind of moral dimension that is completely lacking from a lot of that language the very idea behind this movie mm-hmm. that there are people who think that their lives have more value than someone else's mm-hmm. and the decision to make the people whose lives have quote unquote less value than these guys lives to be not white people uh, is so incredibly grotesque. And I think the movie knows it. Yeah. And yet, how do we get past that? How do we get past that to enjoy this yeah. film? Well, and the, the problem is, at the time, in you know, the late 90s, the art was asking these questions, the films were asking these questions, the filmmakers were all wondering about these things, and nobody had an answer. There wasn't a solution. We're digging through all of this superficiality and finding nothing at the core of it. It was all just nihilism. Yeah, and now Jeremy Piven's character has kind of gone off the deep end. Well, I think it's he feels they're, they've been marked now. Well, I mean, like they're we, just sort of damned. We had another scene at a restaurant like not that long ago where we actually got a clear look at the restaurant. We saw them in the world. By that point, they're just so isolated. Everything that they do is a series of close-ups, and everything else that isn't them and their lives and their problem is purely academic. And mm-hmm. then we have this great contrast with this scene, which I think is arguably the best scene in the movie where they actually have to deal with another human being and her reactions and her judgment and coming up with a lie that sounds so bad it would justify why they're acting like this, but it's still a manipulation and it's still a horror. Mm. This is the world sort of encroaching in on them, which is why I wondered, 
if maybe Christian Slater's tears while looking at Daniel Stern dying next to Jane Triplehorn mm-hmm. might be somewhat genuine. Okay. Might be. Because she represents something human or humane in a world where nothing else has that. Mm-hmm. Well, also, she represents uh, the kind of life that I think these guys all really aspire to, like having a, a, a strong, forthright wife, a good life, some kids, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, ability, su- the su- yeah. suburban ideal. And she's the one who's judging them. They As can't well they can't should. reach that life. In fact, you know, what they're doing is not leading them toward this suburban comfort. It's actually pushing them further and further away. And I'm sorry to speak of Jean Triplehorn's character as sort of symbolic, but, you know, she is so outside of the world of these main dudes that it I, kind of plays that way. I think they're all symbolic. I think they're not very, like, realistic human beings. And I don't think the film's trying to make them that way. I mean, my God, Christian Slater is masturbating with a knife right now. He's actually <laughs> masturbating with a knife right now. slept with a prostitute in Vegas. He was sick with guilt. 1998, there were a lot of laughs. These days, not so much. <laughs> yeah, but when you're in college, this film is hilarious. And I did have the poster of this. Oh, it was very popular, that poster with uh, uh, Christian Slater with the chainsaw. With the chainsaw, and Which yeah, yeah. I thought would mean like he would like run into the wedding with a chainsaw and like start slashing away at everybody. Yeah, there, there were a lot of quotes from critics. Oh, blistering, balls to the wall. And they could, back before, they could even put the word balls on a poster. Well, I, th- I think there are movies called balls, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was being presented as something very raucous. Mm. I think a lot of people took that raucousness from it. Well, I mean, I think... <sighs> The initial reaction to this movie is something that we're still talking about today because it was very divisive. And the initial reactions to a movie are often very, very much uh, related to how it was marketed, how it was presented before anyone actually saw it, thereby setting people's expectations for what it would actually be. And the marketing for Very Bad Things was odd because in many respects it was playing itself off as a broad you know, dark comedy, wedding centric, dark comedy. But like, you know, that was sort of the idea. This will be fun. Everyone have a good time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's not what it is at all. Yeah. It's also worth noting that the early trailers for this film kind of spoiled the ending. I mean, it didn't spoil like the last scene, but the whole like reversal with Cameron Diaz, where we find out that when she actually finds out everything that's going on, her solution is more murder. Mm. It would, it would please me. <laughs> That was that was ruined. They gave away like the whole damn movie. Like at least it's like oh, moral arc in a nutshell. Oh, that's that's a big problem with trailers in general, though. I, look, I'm sorry. It's just for tonight. Lois is a mess. Michael is upset. Everybody's upset. Shut up! Okay. I am not canceling this. She, yeah, she wants she. Her her domesticity is being jump started. I think that's sort of a, a, one of her big issues. The wedding is being interrupted by you know what's supposed to happen in your marriage several years down the line, and they already have bratty kids they have to deal with and a barking dog that they hate. She and everyone else in the film is incredibly selfish and the idea of taking care of kids, kids at least one of whom has, you know, particular needs. Mm -hmm. He's he's injured. He's in the the, Yeah, that's the the helmet. She doesn't want responsibility. Look, the wedding is an opportunity for everything to be about her. Mm -hmm. 
It's a major yeah, one, intrusion. One, one of the things she screams during the wedding is, this is my day. Yeah. Nasty problem. Diddy, Diddy. Boom. Bing. Yeah, this, this is where they're, all these sequences where Jeremy Piven is just sort of freaking out. This is where they're kind of coming to moral terms with sort of how far down the rabbit hole they've gone. They kind of realize that there's no going back. You know, multiple murders and only now they're realizing that there's no going back. This is where Boyd decides to just sort of actively start murdering people. And it's also where they talk about God the most. We've been goosed by God. And if you look at certain films from the 90s, there was uh, a cynicism that took uh, took the form of evil characters that were somehow blessed by God. And I'm thinking of films like Natural Born Killers mm. or True Romance, uh, both the same screenwriter, incidentally. Uh, but... Uh, about these sort of criminal characters who find themselves in these bloody climaxes where they're somehow able to escape. Yeah. And like a cop confronts them, but then the cop is knocked over by like, a cop. You don't get it, man. Evil yeah. wins in this narrative. E- evil, yeah. Evil always, or even evil or not, just the violent characters get away. Somehow God is looking out for them. And all of the chaos that they've created, they can just sort of leave behind. And that's sort of their catharsis. Or contradictory, uh, in this universe, there is no God. Well, in, in this film, that's sort of an inversion of that, where they're cursed. That they're, they're, they're be completely being ignored by God if there is even a, even a God at all. There's a whole genre I really like. And I feel like this film dances around it. It's called the, I call it the poor bastard genre. No, where the, the out-of-towners sort of thing? Yeah, the out-of-towners or uh, After Hours or the Evil Dead movies are another example. Quick Change with Bill Murray, where the protagonists can do no right. Like, nothing can possibly go right for them. Mm-hmm. And depending on how much they deserve it, it's either funny or it's, like, very bad things and kind of horrifying. Mm-hmm. These guys deserve to be cursed. These guys deserve to have Gene Triplehorn... Bite their Bite. dick. Which, by the way, I really want to interview Gene Triplehorn about that. This whole scene. This is one hell of a scene. She's got that face mask on. Mm. Like it's just a bizarre fight choreography where it's all about. It, you, you can imagine Peter Berg like at a typewriter. I imagine he had a typewriter going clicky clack clicky clack. Ah, oh, then she bites his. She bites his wiener. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just this incredibly absurd, crazy thing you'd never seen in a movie. And if you put it in the scene, no matter what, people are going to go, holy crap. Yeah, that, that's that's very odd and actually kind of amusing that it's going that far. And unfortunately, you know as soon as the... Even though Gene Triplehorn is, like, a moral character, she doesn't deserve anything that happens to her in this movie. She's the one who's confronting them. Very convincingly. She's the one who's fighting back. She's the one doing the kung fu kick. It's a roundhouse kick, yeah. for God's sake. Um, because we know these characters are all sort of doomed, we know kind of the outcome going in. Like, unfortunately, we kind of know that... In the scene where they kind of confess to her, we know that she's also marked for death. We're, we're already so far down in, in, in the trenches with this... Uh, movie's cynical worldview. Yeah. I don't know if know I needed a shot of, for death. I don't know if I needed a close-up of Jeremy Piven looking like he's covered in Vaseline, but maybe that's me. <laughs> Jeremy Piven and his weird moving hairline. <laughs> moves back, it moves forth, it moves back. Comfortable. The only thing is, uh, you still got Michael there, right? Right? Yeah. Okay, great. She wants to see him in person. She 
I find it kind of odd that Jeremy Piven would do a movie like Very Bad Things, which already burns masculine camaraderie and depraved uh, bonhomie between men all the way down to the ground, and then go ahead and do Entourage anyway. Well... Like th- this is all. This is the antidote to Entourage before we had it. It, it. There's all this kind of weird six degrees of separation stuff. Like, so we had Jeremy Piven doing very bad things and then doing Entourage. And you know who else was in Entourage? Kevin Dillon. You know who starred in Stag? Kevin, Kevin Dillon. Dillon. Oh, so they all they all came together anyway. It's all super weird, and I don't think everyone. I think you know on the on the on the sidelines, it's easy to say to themselves, well. They made these calculated decisions. It might have just been a good role at the time. Yeah. It's fine. Well, th- this came out at a time with sort of the, the era of the, the, quote, the sensitive New Age guy. Sure, surely you remember all of that language from oh, yeah. like the mid-90s. or uh, The 90s ma- man. The, the 90s man, you know, the sensitive new man. Like people were asking in 1995, what are you going to do with someone like James Bond? It's like mm. ladies man. Well, but men are meant to be more sensitive and more considerate, considerate of women's mm. feelings now. I know. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Right. And, uh, there are still people who, are, who fight against that in James Bond to this day. Uh, yeah, golly. And so I think whenever one of those waves happens, and that's what was going on right here at Very Bad Things, we're sort of talking about what happens when a man who is meant to be more sensitive is trying to reassert himself. And it's sort of revealing that the assertion of masculinity is nothing but nihilism and violence. I think there's also a, a kind of... Uh, backlash to that sort of language and then shortly after this we did have things like Entourage we had things like The Man Show yeah. uh, things that were or and even during all of this uh, in, in the 90s we had Married with Children mm. which was meant to be a satire but was also eventually turned well, into this weird reassertion of it's, single it's, masculinity again it's the, the real issue that you run into when you dramatize ugly behavior mm-hmm. is that in a movie you have or a TV show you have to make that you know interesting or fun to watch mm-hmm. and once it's interesting or fun to watch it starts being palatable and relatable because you're starting to get to like these characters it's like um, I think it was Truffaut who said you can't make an anti-war movie yeah that was Truffaut because once you put war on screen it looks exciting it looks dramatic there's a certain nobility to it and I appreciate very bad things because it's very bad things. <laughs> it's nothing about this looks appealing. Nothing about this like, oh, everyone gets away fine. Whereas a lot of people have misinterpreted Fight Club as being pro Tyler Durden yeah, because yeah. it's so stylish, because it's so sexy. Well, because he's, he's so cool. He is. He was, he's too cool for the movie to work yeah, in you, a lot of ways. You present the characters as, as like cool and funny. You, you immediately begin the, to think that they're, that's the way you ought to behave. I feel that way about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I know you do. That, that movie is bright and colorful and fun and funny, and all the characters are like energetic and funny. They're also all monsters. Yeah. <laughs> you look at them from a moral perspective, those are terrible characters. And 500 Days of Summer is the same way. It's easy to sort of disregard mm. just how kind of immature and selfish and self-centered mm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is and imagine that, it is sort of a romantic That movie's movie. about that. True, but all these movies are about that. Mm. It's just easy to miss it. Here we see them like cursed on every level, where like the solution to their problem was kill Gene Triplehorn, but they were godparents uh, to their kids. So not only do they have the kids, but also the money that they were gonna like 
used to like oh at least we'll be able to take care of them they don't have that anymore yeah like there were too many debts so they only they only got a little bit of money I believe the, the actual like final figure in this scene was fourteen thousand dollars which is I, although I don't know what sort of world they're living in where they're living in a, a suburb outside of Los Angeles and a house only costs 300 grand. It's like a house out there would be like 1.3 million these days. Um, I don't know, maybe it's haunted. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's like watching old movies and seeing the old gas prices and just feeling really wistful. I was just doing that with very bad things. What are you talking about? <laughs> when Daniel Stern was at the gas station, I was like, oh my God, they were so cheap. The gas is so cheap. <laughs> Look at us crying over gas prices the same way John Favreau is crying over his guilt about being complicit in all these murders. Hey, you know what? We live in Los Angeles. It's pretty much the same. Uh, John Favreau gives a pretty excellent performance in this. I, I, I love the reaction shot at the beginning of the scene where it opens with a close-up of his face. And his, he's got like this sort of really pensive, panicked expression on his face. It's just really perfect. It's, it's really interesting because like John Favreau has become a really important director. I mean, he ushered in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's been pushing the boundaries of photorealistic animation in ways that even Robert Zemeckis never did. And we kind of overlook that he didn't just start off as a character actor. There was this period in the 90s where it looked like he was going to be a big star between Swingers and Maid and Very Bad Things, and he's very capable of it. He has a very likable everyman quality. Well, when, which you know, when he shows up in like a Spider-Man film, he taps into that again. Yeah, he's great. It's just sort of yeah, another kind of put upon everyman character in the superhero universe. But yeah, the, the arc of John Favreau's career is truly unusual because he uh, he wrote Swingers. He didn't direct that. No, uh, Doug Liman did. Doug that. Liman directed that. But then he wrote and directed Made, which uh, I think he proved that he had a lot of great chops with something like Made. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's starring in a lot of these like indie projects. He's starring in very bad things. These things are uh, edgy, a little off the wall. And it's really strange to consider that he has spent the better part of the last decade working under the Disney banner well, yeah, for but... these ultra commercial, <laughs> super technologically profound projects. Like he's turning into James Cameron. Look at the Can way... you imagine if... if <laughs> Todd Salons went on to make something like Black Panther. But a lot of them did, though. But you got to remember, like, a lot of, like, Peter Berg got to start doing this, and he went on to do Battleship, Battleship yeah. and, like, Jeez. these very respectable uh, movies about America in states of perpetual war, be it Lone Survivor or Patriot's Day. Uh, you look at John Favreau again, look at someone like James Gunn, who got to start doing some of the most atrociously, horrifically messed up comedies oh, for trauma. I love and, those trauma films. And now he does superhero movies for families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People grow up, and I wonder well, sometimes. Pe- people like, grow how, up, yeah. or if you were to ask them in the 90s, do people sell out? That's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. And there's a certain like level here where maturity meets selling out. Mm. Um and you can say one thing you can say about very bad things. It's not a sellout movie. <laughs> no. They were perfectly willing to like lose money, and they did. The movie cost thirty million dollars, and apparently only made about ten. Mm. So it was a risk, but it made an impression. People did not forget this. I don't know the numbers on home video, but I bet it did very well. Yeah, because people were just like, "You got to see this damn thing." And this was the '90s when the you know, home video could actually make up a lot of the back end of a feature film. Oh, those were the days. It's hard remember, to imagine that working in the streaming era. Yeah, remember when uh, um, 
Austin Powers was kind of a nothing. It was this little blip of a comedy when it came out in the late 90s. And then on home video, it just exploded. Uh, Terminator as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We would not have had Terminator 2 if it wasn't for home video. Yeah, same with something like Repo Man. Well, Repo Man was more of a soundtrack. Speaking of soundtracks, we should probably give a little bit of credit to uh, Stuart Copeland from The Police, who... um, is not scoring this movie. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's scoring scor- a he's, movie. He's scoring like Soap Dish or some like really lighthearted comedy. I think that's uh, the gag. No, that is the gag. It, it's it, it, The music is all ironic. It all plays counterpoint. And I'm wondering how he was instructed to score this movie. Like this... Uh, he, was, he was instructed to score it like a comedy. Yeah. Uh, Peter Berg has talked about this where he knew that it needed to read as a comedy mm. in order to be palatable. Because if this was reading as Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which it very easily could have, okay. you know, no one would want to watch it. Mm. So he relied on Copeland a lot to keep it as light as it possibly could be so people knew it was okay to laugh. Yeah. So have like the, yeah, these like light rumba beats and Latin sounding music underscoring all of these horrendous murders. Okay. Yeah, now can't, we saw Cameron Diaz has taken a coat rack and... Hung up his coat. Uh, first blood on her part. <laughs> now I want to see sure, very well, bad things too. Last blood. Well, I mean, uh, and this is not sort of indicative of how we've been talking about sort of the the slide that these guys have been going down and how they've lost everything and everybody's murdering each other and they're all just completely wasted human beings now. And. I think for John Favreau and for Cameron Diaz, they were at least clinging on to the wedding, not even the marriage, just the wedding as yeah. the one thing that's going to perhaps redeem them. It will end all of this. Yeah, if we can get through the wedding, yeah. it's over. And I think the movie works and, on that level as well. And yeah, the but, basic idea. And then, of course, Cameron Diaz, this is my day. She is so like obsessed with having this perfect wedding day that she is just as willing to commit these horrendous acts of violence as these guys are. There's no respite in hell. (laughs) (laughs) I find it curious that at the end of the movie, she's the one who gets punished the worst out out of all of this. Is she? I mean, she gets punished a lot. Is she get punished the worst? Well, maybe not the worst, but yeah, like her suffering is the thing we're left with. Well, I mean, if you're looking at I mean, they're doing all of these murders. They're trying to do it in order to preserve domesticity. They're trying to do it to preserve mm-hmm. their seemingly normal life. And inspired because the they're not the only one who benefits from all of this horror. They're doing it for her, at mm-hmm. least partly for her. At least John Favreau's partly doing right, it for right. her. To give her something resembling normalcy. So, I don't know. I think, it's, I think it might be immature to say she's as culpable, but what we see towards the end is that if this was about her bachelorette party, she probably would have done the same thing. That's the main. Yeah. That's what I get out of this. Is that so? She might not have done as bad things, but she's probably as bad a person. Yeah. Well, I think the title "Very Bad Things" doesn't necessarily refer to their actions. It refers to the characters. They're, they're all things. They, they're all very bad things. <laughs> I dig it. Yeah. They're 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 just these sort of. Objects of horror, these chunks of meat that can't do anything right. What a daring choice as a title. Like, just like, (laughs) I dare you, film critics. I dare you to use my title in a punny way. Yeah. Very bad things is full of said things. (laughs) 
Got him. Now we can begin. Do you, Kyle? It's kind of a non-denominational wedding, isn't it? Uh, it is, and I kind of appreciate that. Mm. Uh, the image of a of a woman uh, yeah, running the service was not this, was yeah. not common in, in cinema at the time. That's true. Oh, and everything's gonna be okay. Oh well, that was great. Uh, this was very bad things. It ended very happily. Uh, everyone's <laughs> fine. I just want to oh. thank everybody. Oh, oh, oh. is there more? <laughs> did, I miss, uh, did I miss the ending? No, the moral depravity isn't over yet. <laughs> Like it could have ended right there. Like just we've we've gotten the message now, and Peter Berg just really wants to rub our face. I mean, if he hasn't already rubbed your face in it badly enough, you know, to get Cameron Diaz involved in all of their murderous games, it's like he admitted to her that they murdered somebody, and she said, "We're gonna do the wedding," and it's like f they broke first blood, and she took that as an opportunity to now start indulging in things that were all, always lurking inside of well, her. And at this point, we're engaged in the surreal. Hmm. Boyd should have been dead. And if he wasn't dead, he shouldn't have been able to climb stairs like that. Hmm. And beyond that Looney Tunes construction, he is bloody in a stairwell at their wedding venue. Hmm. And a lot of people are there. It's a huge wedding. And that has not come up yet. They're very blasé about it. How are they going to get him out of here? The movie has stopped caring. Yeah, like it's his, just, his body is still in that stairwell. At this point, they're just pretty good at it. Yeah. It's that, that joke from uh, from uh, Pod People, Mystery Science Theater version <laughs> of Pod People. All the characters keep dying, and one of the one of the quips was, uh, guys, I don't mean to be crass, but we're getting really good at this. <laughs> I'd say the yeah, person who's—I say the person who suffers more than anyone else is sadly the dog. The dog did nothing. The dog lives, though. The dog lives. The dog is. The dog is mutilated, but yeah. the dog does live. I'm, I'm not sure that's constant. What did the dog do? I guess the dog's helping him dig. <laughs> yes, the the dog has taken a moral stance and is helping them get away with this. I was always kind of baffled by their use of luggage. Mm. In these burials, because like when Daniel Stern says, hey, whoa, we can't bury him like this. I thought he was going to say, like, our initials are on that luggage. They could trace that luggage back to us. I, I think they bought the luggage in that Target montage. Wow. Just sort of what they do now. They need the luggage. It's part of the ritual. But yeah, we've reached the point where the blood sacrifice isn't really for anything any longer. Like, we, it's... In Cameron Diaz's mind, it's the thing to get back to normalcy. Well, but it's for the wedding. These these guys have already learned that more murder does not get you back to normalcy. It's just more murder. I've been thinking, I've been thinking about what you said that day. The yeah. prayer. This is Leland Orser's one bit of like actual insight. He's just been sort of the yeah you pointed out. He's just the nervous guy in the background in most scenes, but here he says. We we can get away. We need to leave. We need to do something to get out of this hole. And yet, in literally. Some, and yet, in respect, I feel like that in and of itself is kind of perverse. I mean, we're supposed to feel kind of bad for Leland Orser, mm. even though he's being kind of casually racist right now. Like, I feel like we're supposed to be like, oh no, John Favreau's going to kill Leland Orser, the guy who didn't, the guy who all he did was like cover up multiple murders and, <laughs> like, no, like in a way, not killing Leland Orser is also kind of a sin. By saying Leland Orser like deserves to live, mm. he's they're, they're, none of them do. <laughs> they all deserve torment. They all deserve punishment. <laughs>
Do you love me? It's all based on love, man. Yeah. Love will always win. <laughs> what a lie. Mm -hmm. In the world of very bad things. In reality, yeah. love wins all the time. Every time. It's uh, true. Yeah, very, very, there is nothing, nothing positive in this movie whatsoever. There are no, there's no, like, actual winning in this universe. Right. Like, who come, we're talking about how all the characters, you know, nobody comes out on top, but, like, what is a way to survive in this universe? Like, how do you come out on call top? Call the cops. Yeah. When something, listen. Yeah, you call the like, cops, and then you jam a corkscrew into their chest. No, no, and no, them, no, you don't. Bleed out in a you skip the corkscrew. You just call them. Like, I remember when, it, when I was a kid, I was watching this movie, I'm just like, I've seen enough movies to know that if you accidentally kill someone, you just call the cops. And I'll bet you anything, any cop in the world, would be like, especially for these guys, these upper upper class white guys, mm. well, would just be like, class, but yeah. would just be like, well, upper middle class, yeah. would just be like, oh, thank you for calling us. Really, if you tried to kill a whole bunch of people and bury the bodies, it would have created so much more trouble for us. Right. This is great. But yeah, these guys, they're living in this weird fantasy world where, as a bunch of like reasonably, you know, well-to-do white guys, are going to be the ones who are really screwed. Um, Alan Dershowitz, of all people, did uh, did it, we contributed to an article I think it was in Premier Magazine mm -hmm. where he talked about how much trouble are they actually in in very bad things, mm -hmm. and his argument was, uh, for the murder, it's pretty obviously an accident. They probably wouldn't even press charges. The drugs they're in trouble for, like the drugs are going to be mm -hmm. the drugs. They're going to put away for the drugs, like that's what they should have won. They should have just flushed all the drugs, mm -hmm. and then just called the cops. Well, and here, this final scene, this little epilogue of everything, where you get to see just how horrendous everything has become. Gosh, this is so grotesque. And uh, we do finally see that uh, Cameron Diaz's character has learned just how horrible domesticity is. Like, this is what it really looks like at the end of the day. Well, not literally uh, for everybody. It, not for everybody, but yeah, this is sort of like... Yeah, the, the mutilated version of what she's always dreamed of. She has the home, but she's not. it's not really well paid for. She has, you know, the complacent husband, but he's not whole. I don't she has know, kids, man. but they're not hers, and they hate everything. I don't know. A part of me wishes, kind of wishes we could have seen a scene, like, or, or a sequel, mm. where... What, what, do the, what do people do to people who are just in their way in Very Bad Things? You kill them. Cameron Diaz would kill all of these people. But she's, yeah, she's just so but defeated she's, at the she's, end. Yeah, she's worked so hard to get this. Yeah, do you want to talk? Like he's yeah, now actually, he's a 90s now man. Now he's sensitive. He's a 90s man. He's talking to the kids in a really sensitive way. Do you want to talk about a relationship? Yeah, and she just runs out into the street. She is full of despair. She is... You know, in a robe, she's not you know, glowing like she is on her wedding day. She's just covered in grit and, and dirt and wet, muddy water. I want to I wanna read from you. I found the, the last page of Peter Berg's uh, screenplay for this. And this is the last bit in the screenplay. Crane up. Past Liz at the window, out of the yard, over the house, wider to reveal the surrounding track-like homes, housing track-like families with track-like nightmares as Liz's plaintive wails echo the communal despair of the human village. <laughs> Poetry. Yep. They're, they're very bad things. There they are. 
Like I said, the, the the only way to really jam it home in a really obvious, I'm a kid in college sort of way is to have a sign that says, welcome to hell. <laughs> and uh, that's very bad things. Yeah, uh, it's it's really miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's trying to be. It's and trying I think to be, an... it's, and it's making a point with its misery, which I kind of appreciate, and I think that's something a lot of critics were reacting perhaps... I'm not going to say incorrectly, just badly too at the time. Well, again, I think I think a lot of people, Ebert said, I get what Peter Berg is doing. I just don't think it works. He didn't think it was funny. Mm -hmm. But it was undeniably well-crafted. It was undeniably exactly what Peter Berg was attempting to do. But I think it is, you know, work of a filmmaker who was trying to get noticed, was trying to um, say something really potent, even if it wasn't necessarily, you know, beautifully philosophical. And I think it, it works. And I think the reason why I respect very bad things now, even though sometimes it's just hard to watch, <laughs> is because that's kind of what it is. It's this primal scream of filmmakers and actors who wanted to do something very different, very countercultural. And even if it didn't work, it would have to be noticed. No one would yeah. be able to mm -hmm. miss what very bad things was laying down. Maybe you liked it, maybe you hated it. And as I've grown over the years, I viewed it from both lenses. And now I'm kind of just right in the middle where I just think it's a very interesting film for all of its positive qualities and all of its negative qualities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering if something like Very Bad Things could be made today, and I don't think it could be. No. I think I think cynicism is just out of fashion right now, especially this type of cynicism that is meant to tear down like a lot of traditional structures I see some filmmakers attempt it but then you have stuff like um, I don't know Postal mm. or Game Over Man yeah. where they're trying to well, there's no nuance to that yeah there's no nuance to it and it's difficult to tell in a lot of those movies if they're trying to dismantle the male ethos or if they're trying to bolster it by pushing it to a logical extreme right think, and we've reached this yeah. weird point where we are no longer able to, I think, it, uh, I forgot the name of it, but there's a, a name for this sort of law where real life has become so cartoonish that you can no longer satirize it by exaggerating. Right. And I feel like if you tried to make something like Very Bad Things, it wouldn't play like satire anymore. Mm. It would play like just a regular straight-up celebration of this type of behavior and this type Look, of violence. Look, there have been a lot of different ways to tell this kind of story. Everything from arsenic and old lace to very bad things to a simple plan, and they all have different tones. Um, I think very bad things, it's a very specific place, probably was in the 90s, was mm -hmm. in that absolute uh, apocalyptic despair at what the dream of what America and what, you know, marriage and domesticity can and should be and whether or not it was worth killing for. Uh, just was starting to completely collapse. Yeah. So maybe this movie was kind of a lightning rod that came out at exactly the right time to make the impression that it made. Mm. But it's made that impression. Uh, I'm glad that uh, a lot of you have been watching this commentary track with us and sort of considering the many different ramifications of the movie thematically and also in the careers of the people involved. Uh, I want to say thank you to everybody. Uh, Whitney, you have any last thoughts before we uh, wrap this up? Um, no, I think I've said it all. I think uh, I've said it all. I've, I've covered it. No, I, I think um, it's it's an interesting uh, time capsule for sure as to what attitudes were like in the 1990s. Yeah. 
what it, we felt it was safe to put on screen, uh, the kind of ideas we felt it was safe to tear down, and there was still a gigantic monocultural myth that we were able to kick in the shins and tear down. Yeah. And Very Bad Things did that very effectively. Yeah. Well, well thanks for listening. Uh, I've been Whitney Seibold. I've been William Bibiani. And uh, be very good things. Do you believe that we're